This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto. Hello and welcome to Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network and I am Ben Schiller, Features Editor here at Coindesk. And joining me today is Danny Nelson. Hi, Danny. Hello. And Cam Thompson, fresh from Barcelona. How was Barcelona, Cam? Barcelona was amazing. I fought the jet lag way better than I expected. I had a great time, met a lot of cool people, went to some fun side events, ate a lot of Iberian ham. What was the conference? It was the Avalanche Summit. Avalanche ah. Summit 2. This was the second Avalanche Summit. It was at the Poble Espanol in Barcelona, and a lot of cool people were there who are building on Avalanche. Nice. It was awesome. I'm very jealous of Barcelona. That's a really nice place. All right, we've got a packed show today, and just a quick housekeeping note. So um, this podcast is called Carpe Consensus, and Consensus 23 is in fact over. We had a great time down in Austin, but we are continuing with the show because uh, there's still some speakers from C23 that we want to talk to, and then we'll be wrapping up for next year's event. And this is very much an evergreen podcast. Are you excited by that, Danny? I am. You know, we're we're going to keep on keeping on. We've got a lot to talk about. There's no time like the present to keep digging into this stuff. But I just want to say for our listeners, you don't need to just be a listener in this show. You can uh, take a piece of Coindesk history, I, could, I might say, and get some desk token just by being a listener. Ooh. Yes, that is, of course, our definitely not an investment token that uh, is associated with the Coindesk brand available for you to get for free because it has no value. So not only do you have fun uh, listening to us, uh, which is a great privilege, uh, you can also own um, Coindesk's very own social token, and that is redeemable for much swag at Consensus. It has no monetary value and you can't trade it, but uh, it is something we're very excited about here at Coindesk. So uh, let's get to our first segment. All right, we're going to go inside the desk, and this is where we talk about stories that have appeared recently on Coindesk Network. And we're going to start with a brewing controversy around something called BRC20. And BRC20 is a token on Bitcoin, and uh, it's an extension of a debate that started really with ordinals, which are basically NFTs on the Bitcoin network. And it pits some Bitcoin purists who argue that Bitcoin should effectively only be used for monetary purposes, uh, its original intention, and other people who say that Bitcoin is a open source innovation network and should be used for other purposes such as NFTs or for these BRC20 tokens. And the controversy is brewing because as these new uses come along, the fees for using Bitcoin have been rising. And to these purists, these maxis, these rising fees are injurious or hurting people who want to use Bitcoin around the world for monetary purposes. And those non-monetary purposes should basically be frozen out. Ben, didn't someone write a piece on this recently, this whole BRC20 debacle that's going on? Yeah, was, this was a debate that was picked up by a very esteemed commentator, Coindesk columnist Nick Carter this morning who wrote that there's no such thing as high fees on Bitcoin. Uh, effectively, it's a marketplace in which the market decides what the price of Bitcoin should be. And uh, if there are problems with high fees, that's just a side effect of innovation and the market at work. So Danny, uh, what do you think about this debate? I'm going to have to side with Nick Carter on this one, Ben. You know, just because people are using the Bitcoin network and the Bitcoin code in ways that 
others didn't expect doesn't mean it's not the right way to do it. Ordinals and BRC20s, they don't require any core changes to how Bitcoin operates. It's just built on top of what's already there. And sure, maybe in the white paper is really only envisioning this monetary network, but it's a network that is being used now to have economies on it, economies of NFTs, economies of meme coins. Who is any one individual to say this is or isn't how Bitcoin should be used? It's a public good. It's not something that one person can decide the future of. I agree with what Danny was saying. I think it's naive for a lot of these very toxic Bitcoin maximalists to have an issue with something being built on top of the network. We have to remember that besides Bitcoin being a cryptocurrency, that's little b, and then there's big B for the network. The Bitcoin blockchain was one of the earliest blockchains that got a lot of traction and kind of set the foundation for creating these proof of work chains that we see today. And this whole concept of this Web3 ethos, which does apply to cryptocurrency, is that people should be able to interact with these open source types of technologies and being able to build technologies on top of those blockchains that have already been created. So I don't think that these maximalists know what they're talking about. It's it's fascinating. They should just look at Ethereum and then get angry. <laughs> look at Ethereum and get angry. That is the word from Cam. Oh my goodness. So just to take the opposite side of the debate here, and I'm not saying I agree with this, but the argument against what you're just saying is that, you know, by having these other uses for Bitcoin, it raises the fees for all users. And that includes people who don't have any money and who we want to see use Bitcoin for monetary purposes and where they're really dependent on Bitcoin as a alternative uh, monetary network. Uh, and if you're paying $20 a time to use Bitcoin, then uh, Bitcoin quickly becomes impossible to use and there's a really a, an adoption problem. So you have this kind of age-old debate between, you know, purity and adoption. So, and, and, and interestingly, this is a kind of a rerun, as Nick Carter said this morning in his piece, uh, of a block size war debate that went on between 2015 and 2017, where you had some people saying that Bitcoin should be composed of small blocks, which is how it was originally um, invented, and other people who said it should be bigger blocks because we should have higher scalability and more transaction speed. But interestingly, some of those people who argued for small blocks are now coming out against these higher fees. So they've effectively switched sides in this debate, which is kind of an interesting episode of hypocrisy, as Nick Carter says. Look, everyone seems to want adoption of Bitcoin. And Bitcoin has been around for a, a little bit now. And it's had some success to varying degrees around the world as a monetary network. Now we're seeing a new type of, of adoption for Bitcoin of people building novel things on top of it. I, who's to say that this adoption is less valid than that adoption, right? Like, yeah, maybe Bitcoin would be best as this democratizing force exclusively to move money around the world, but it still is that. And now there's just more use cases for it. I mean, I think the impact, uh, what well, I mean, not according to me, but according to many people, is going to be that we're going to see more off-chain transactions on Bitcoin, i.e. moving to layer twos like Lightning, because if there's going to be so much congestion on the uh, layer one, then um, that's going to push people to use that, that layer two system that is already quicker anyway. So it's going to be an interesting thing to watch out for in the, in the weeks and months ahead. So Danny, what's our next item? Do you have any news for us? Well, I've got plenty of news, but we're going to save it for the dungeon today. Oh, I can't wait. Okay. All right, let's move to our next segment then. 
So Danny Nelson, uh, this week or this month, the month of May, uh, CoinDesk turns 10 years old. It's the 10th oh anniversary goodness. of CoinDesk, which is hard to believe, really. But we've been pumping out all of this news and all of this content about crypto all of these 10 years. And it's a fascinating moment, actually. So to celebrate that anniversary, we are publishing a series of stories this month called CoinDesk Turns 10. And we picked our favorite story, uh, the biggest story from each of the 10 years of CoinDesk history, and we're doing a retrospective. For instance, we're starting with Mt. Gox, which was a major hack back in uh, 2014, and doing other stories like the DAO hack, which was a, a major existential event for the Ethereum, the newly built Ethereum network in 2016, culminating in last year, which was obviously a year of scandals and uh, many mishaps. Most notably uh, FTX, which is the story that CoinDesk broke. So uh, I have my own ideas of uh, favorites from the package. Do you have any sort of seminal moments that you were uh, favoriting, Danny? Yeah, I've been here for almost four years now. It's weird to think. How long have you been here? Uh, about the same, oh but I was goodness. covering crypto before, so I've been in about nine years. Yeah. You, yeah, you've been in the space for nine. I've been in the space for four. But oh my goodness, it's crazy to think that CoinDesk is now 10. How have we survived this long? No one really knows. It just the last four years for me, and the last ten, there's just been so many crazy, crazy stories that have happening. It's hard to pick a favorite. I really, I'm gonna have to defer to you on that one. Where do you, where do you fit in, Ben? Well, I think, and this is something that Michael Casey, our uh, intrepid leader, a chief content officer, picked up on in an intro piece that he wrote for us last week, uh, which is that. If you look at these 10 stories that we picked from the last 10 years, you know, about eight of them are sort of major disasters like the Dow hack, uh, Mt. Gox, FTX, the kind of disasters that befalling the industry. Uh, and each time these happen, people said, oh, crypto's dead or Bitcoin's dead. But actually, you know, crypto's still here. And you could argue that each of these failures actually made the industry stronger. And I would pick out a particular example of that, which was the Dow hack back in 2016. When someone went into this decentralized autonomous organization that had been founded on Ethereum and basically stole $60 million worth of uh, ETH. At the time, this was seen as a, an existential threat to Ethereum, this, this brave new world of uh, blockchains. And they ended up having to reverse the transaction or revise the transaction so that the people who lost that $60 million in ETH got their money back. And it kind of it made it seem like the, the event never happened because there was kind of this revisionist. And that was very controversial at the time because uh, blockchains are supposed to be unstoppable, they're supposed to be immutable. And here was the very founder of the network rolling it back. But actually, interestingly, arguably led to a stronger Ethereum because people did trust it. And it also stopped what could have been a welter of DAOs at the time. I mean, the DAOs very prominent now, but it, it took a few years to take off. And instead, we kind of got the ICO boom, which was a direct to investor model of funding instead of this kind of DAO model of funding. And that was precisely because of this DAO hack that took place at the time. Do you agree with this contention that actually these disasters and mishaps and hacks and scandals actually makes the industry stronger, that there's a kind of iterative process around these failures? Or do you think uh, as a lot of crypto critics might say, uh, these disasters are just disasters showing a disastrous industry. Well, up until this point, the last, let's say, let's let's take the last 12 months and we're going to put it in a little box for a second. Everything that came before that, I think, has been net positive for crypto, for moving the ball forward. I don't yet know if what we've seen in, over the last 12 months is a net benefit 
for crypto. It's just everything that's come after the collapse of Terra, starting with the collapse of Terra itself, has been just really bad for crypto adoption, for crypto's stance in the world, for the public perception of it. It's not, we're not in a good place right now. We're in a place where the biggest activity in crypto is just because there's another meme coin frenzy. If you're hoping for crypto to rise to the occasion of being this alternative mechanism for moving money around the world without government oversight, right? That's the idea that's at the core of this. And Pepe coin is not proving that to be true. And neither is the collapse of Luna or everything else. So we'll see what happens if the business failures of crypto are going to mean that we're going to come out stronger. Yeah. But maybe that's a failure of regulators to respond properly to FTX. I mean, you could point to Mt. Gox, which was uh, in 2014, transacting up to 70% of all Bitcoin. You could say that that collapse did lead to quite sensible regulation in Japan, uh, which is now seen as a pioneer and, and, and leader in exchange regulation. So that might be an example of a failure leading to a positive outcome. But it does require the sage regulators to come in and, and, and do their job. And it seems like uh, Gary Gensler, uh, the head of the SEC, is not really doing his job properly. And maybe that's a failure of Congress as well. Well, sure, there have been these failures at the, of the regulator level. But let's talk about self-regulatory, right? Crypto as an industry has failed to police the bad actors out of existence. There's been a, there's been a willingness to suspend disbelief time and again on the part of investors who see high yields and don't ask many questions beyond that. And sure, the regulators do have a place to play, but if this whole thing is going to succeed, then it's going to have to succeed in part because of its own designs, not because it relied on the regulators that some people in crypto joined crypto because they were trying to move away from. But I mean, DeFi hacks, I mean, do you think that makes DeFi stronger? Mm, DeFi hacks. No, I really don't. I th think it's just kind of, well, well, every, look, every DeFi hack is different, but a lot of these DeFi hacks end up bankrupting the protocol. Euler, they got hacked, they got a lot of the money back, but they're in a very bad financial position even so, and there's, there's a crisis of confidence there. Other DAOs, other, other DeFi protocols, when they lose money, it's a big deal. So sure, some people come out stronger because they realize, oh, well, we're not going to fall victim in the same way. But it's hard to say for sure that all these hacks are positive. So Danny, you've been here for four of those 10 years of Coindesk history. Do you have a favorite story from those four years if uh, Danny did four? Uh, you know, I'll ha I think I have two answers, right? One is the favorite experience. The other is the, my favorite story. My favorite story that I've worked on is probably the one about the Macalino brothers of Saber fame. That was the most in-depth reporting I've gotten to do here at Coindesk. And it's just a wild, wild story from my putting it together to writing it out. Just a crazy time. That was last August. My favorite experience was back when I was still an intern, there was a project called Space Chain that was putting a Bitcoin wallet on the ISS. Uh -huh. And somehow Coindesk in its infinite wisdom uh, decided that it was a good use of money for me to go down to the Kennedy Space Center in Florida to watch a big rocket go up in the sky, which was crazy. So those are my two top moments from my time at Coindesk. 
So please check out the piece on coindesk.com. And this week we had the one about the DAO hack, as I said, and we'll have continuing very nice featured stories throughout the month of May, uh, culminating in one about our very own FTX uh, coverage. So stay tuned. Danny's Dungeons. I'm so tired today. Must I spin a tale of deceit and danger to which we will descend into the dungeon that is called Danny's? Yes, you must. Maybe I already have. Welcome to Danny's Dungeon. This week, we're talking DAOs. DAOs in Danny's Dungeon. We just can't get enough of the letter D. Um, anyway, uh, this week and in past weeks, I have been so consumed with all the crazy things happening in DAO world that nobody other than me really seems to care about. But right today, we're going to talk about the DAO building DAOs, which is Aragon, a project that's been around for a very long time trying to build different methods of crypto governance. It's embroiled in this cutthroat fight with activist investors who want it to return some money to them, basically maybe by doing a token buyback program. And Aragon, which has responded by banning these people from the Discord, saying that they're not members of the community. So, you know, this is just a crazy fight that's happening right now. And I'm wondering, Ben, you've been you've been in this space for a while. Have you ever seen a DAO revolt on its own community before? Um, I think I have, but I can't think of any good examples. I mean, there, there was some uh, cases of some DAO members came up with this idea that they weren't happy with the marketing team of the DAO and they got rid of them. Ah, well, yeah, it was MakerDAO, wasn't it? So the difference here is that, you know, voting out of a DAO is one thing, but banning people from the Discord is another, right? I see. Um, because here we have activist investors, including Arca, an a crypto hedge fund, investing in this token and critiquing the project and the project's power brokers, its insiders, fighting back by banning them from the Discord. So the question that I have is, can a DAO be a DAO if its Discord is not open to all members of the DAO? I mean, do you think the Discord is like the public square of the DAO? And if you're not in the Discord, then you're not really in the DAO? That's sort of my position on it, right? Like, if you're not able to contribute to the conversation in the place where everyone contributes to the conversation, then... How are you supposed to be a member of that community? It seems impossible. Okay, so Danny, you have previously talked about Discord and DAOs on Danny's Dungeon. Wow, so many Ds. But when we're talking about the different types of communication methods for members of these decentralized organizations, what are some of the benefits slash drawbacks to putting these communities online in one platform and having these different roles that wield the power to restrict people from being a part of these organizations? Well, you know, you need to have somewhere to have these conversations. And if, it, if the conversation is happening online, then it's happening online and maybe in a Discord. And it doesn't strike me as crazy for these communities to have some mechanism for restricting some kinds of conversation in their Discords. Like you don't really need to have spammers running amok just because you call yourself a, a decentralized autonomous organization. There should be some sort of moderation. The question is, what? how is that moderation pursued and is it being enacted fairly? I, I mean, I guess the point here is that, uh, I mean, there might, might be legitimate reasons in this case for excluding some people who are acting boorishly or, you know, 
unhelpfully in a, in a discord. But uh, if you give DAO members that power going forward, then uh, it could be abused, right? Well, that's the thing. If they're not giving the DAO any power. This is the association, the corporation that actually runs the project, um, deciding that it doesn't like the questions that some members are asking. These, right. these members weren't going about spewing nonsense. They were asking about the status of a treasury transfer that had been four months delayed. And Aragon didn't like having to deal with them. And so banned them. So it gets really to the heart of this philosophical question over what is a DAO and what isn't a DAO. And often in this role, I find myself looking more toward what isn't a DAO than what is. How do you mean? Because, what, well, first off, what does a DAO mean? A, a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. Well, what does that actually mean? Like, who, how is power wielded? Is everything just some anarchical blob that builds somehow cohesively toward a conclusion? No, there's usually some sort of power structure. And the power structure is propped up by the idea that investors can have this token, a governance token, that lets them participate in votes. And Aragon actually has taken the position that people are able to participate in the votes, and on-chain voting is the only useful and only necessary means through which people need to express their opinion. They don't need to do it in the Discord, too. So... That's their position. My thought is you can't really have a DAO if your Discord's on lockdown because it's not just about the on-chain vote. It's about the discussion as well. Absolutely. I mean, it just seems like a lot of these DAOs just get into these endless philosophical questions about like, you know, who should be participating, who has power, you know, what is democracy in a, you know, economic organization. It just seems like uh, so much of the discussion is really about these questions rather than about what the actual DAO does. So, I mean, aren't these DAOs sometimes more trouble than they're worth? Yes. Another way that I've seen discords being moderated in recent weeks was over at Spartacus DAO, where one activist investor that's become very disgruntled actually decided to serve a lawsuit against the founder via Discord. And so a lawyer posted the service notice in the Discord, and then the founder deleted it. From the Discord. You know, just because you delete your legal notice doesn't mean you don't have to show up to the court. Uh, so someone should probably tell this guy that it's not a good idea what he's been doing. So if you just put your fingers in your ears and you go, I can't hear you, that doesn't count? It doesn't. In, in fact, if you push <laughs> the, the source of the noise down the garbage chute, it doesn't not count either. Hmm, that's a shame. I know, right? It'd be so easy. We could just get sued all the time and say no i didn't hear you sorry but sorry. that's not how it works <laughs> all right it's cam's corner cam's corner taking a little trip over to spain today we are talking about something amazing i experienced this past friday and it really opened my eyes up to how so many people are really excited about generative art and experiential art without realizing that there's an nft behind it so Rafik Anadol, who is a generative artist, he produces AI art and has just recently featured a large display on the first floor of the MoMA. He projected one of his works on one of the Gaudi buildings in Barcelona. Thousands of people gathered around this building to watch this display. It ran for 10 minutes, five times. So it was over the course of several hours. And this generative art NFT was mapped onto the building. It was beautiful. There was 
music alongside it. People were so excited. Everyone was sharing it on social media. Many people who probably didn't know what an NFT was were there to be excited about it. And then afterwards, got to I got to meet Rafik Anadol and watch him watch his art and explain some of his favorite parts about it, as well as meet one of the buyers of the NFT that was projected on the building. Interesting. So, I mean, this is taking uh, NFTs from the kind of rarefied online world into a very sort of public space, then that's... Uh... It's not something we see very often. Exactly. Almost removing the NFT completely from the actual experience of enjoying the art. It was really cool to just see people watching and being mesmerized by this display without actually knowing that it's completely Web3. Who actually owns this NFT? Uh, is this something you can actually buy into? So the owners of the NFT come from the fund Punk 629. And Punk629 is a pseudonymous NFT collector who is building the open metaverse. He was featured in our most influential 2022 list. But they have, instead of keeping this NFT and attempting to benefit, reap monetary benefits on it, like a lot of other NFT funds have been doing, they're putting this in the public eye and really trying to make people acquainted with generative art who might not otherwise be able to see it. And I think it's really cool because so many of the barriers to entry for NFT art comes with not only owning a crypto wallet, owning Ethereum, but being able to actually afford to buy into a lot of these very expensive collections. So acquainting people with this new type of NFT art is really cool and really promising to see a lot of people excited about it who might not even might not have even known it was an NFT. I've seen this type of thing once before at an NFT NYC side event. Someone rented out this huge underground warehouse space upon which they projected this crazy, trippy light show that was somehow associated with an NFT. I don't really remember where the NFT came in, and I guess that's kind of the point, right? It's about the experience of the art and how it feels more so than it is about the, the JPEG that you can trade. But you also can trade the JPEG. Exactly. Or I guess it's more of a GIF if it's, if it's going to be a moving light show, but you know. No, exactly. It's putting that on-chain asset out of the equation of actually experiencing it first. It's almost like true art never needed NFTs in the first place. Oh, that's a controversial thing to say. Well, that's awkward. That's really awkward. Shots fired. Thanks, Danny. Yeah. All right. That was Carpe Consensus. Thanks so much, Ben and Danny, for all of your thoughts all the time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Good job. Anyways, we'll be back next week with some more exciting content. But in the meantime, if you are listening to our episodes on Spotify, we have a Q&A that's going on right now. So if there are any topics that you'd like to hear more about, if you have any questions about things we've talked about and you want some follow-up commentary, or if you went to Consensus and you had a good time, tell us. We'll be around to answer. So in the meantime, catch you next week. Bye. 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 Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production, executive produced by Jared Schwartz, and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.